0: And today, rather than taking questions from the congregation, who is not here, um, several confirmands included very thought-provoking questions in their statements of faith. So we thought you would all appreciate knowing what our youth is thinking, knowing some of the questions that they might be asking. And uh, as I said, you may or may not be surprised that these questions come from eighth graders, and Rich, I have to say, they're not easy questions, and I think they're questions all of us would ask. Okay. okay. So let's begin. Are you ready?
1: I, I guess. <laughs> I'm here, so let's go.
0: The first question, does God want us to be peaceful?
1: Does God want us to be peaceful? I mean, that's a great question. The, the easy answer is just to say, well, of course, peace is better than, than violence. But I think, the, at least as I understand, the vision of peace that comes from God is a vision that's deeper than we might think of. Too often, we do think of peace as simply the absence of, for instance, conflict or violence or disagreement. But the biblical concept of peace probably has more to do with the word shalom, which is... Peace and justice for everyone where no one is left behind, and mercy and love, and they weave into each other what is really, I think, the biblical vision of peace. Does God want us to be peaceful? Absolutely. God wants us to weave together those strands of love, justice for everyone, mercy, which is doing more than what justice requires, and peace. Yes, the absence of violence, of course. So God does want us to seek peace, but God also gives us a great vision through God's Son and Jesus um, when Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, not just those who keep fights from starting, but I think blessed, how fortunate, how lucky are those who weave love and justice and peace and mercy all into one. But not only does it end at that, when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he then adds, for they shall see God. Wow. For they shall see God. So blessed are those who work for, seek, and cherish. Shalom. So yes, I think God, the Spirit of God, is urging us on towards a world of shalom.
0: How do I rely on my faith to offer forgiveness when I find some crimes unforgivable.
1: These are from the conferments, right? These are <laughs> I'm sorry, okay. So how do I find in my faith the, the possibility of forgiveness for things that seem unforgivable? Um, wow, right, I mean exactly. People are in different stages of forgiveness. The first thing I'd say if, so, if a confirmand who has asked me that, if we were sitting and talking about it, I'd say, you know what? then maybe you're not yet ready to forgive. Forgiveness isn't something that's on a timeline. You've three months removed, or three years, or three decades removed from something. If someone isn't able to yet forgive, they aren't able to yet forgive. Forgiveness isn't something that you can go to Costco and it's not a commodity you can take off the shelf, and, and at Costco you can get the extra double-sized serving of it. It's not like that at all. It's, it's um, a journey. Forgiveness, which is a lot like our faith, which is a journey. And um, one of the things I think about forgiveness is from one of the stories um, that Jesus tells. And, and there's lots of understandings of what forgiveness is like. But some people say, one writer once said that forgiveness is a little like pain that begins to subside. And maybe in the middle of a night, and the writer says it so beautifully pain seems to pack up its bags and slips away, and it may be days before you realize it is gone. I think that's sometimes the journey of forgiveness, but one of the things about forgiveness, and especially in the story that is always so significant um, that Jesus tells of forgiveness, is that forgiveness is not about approving of the action that, that hurts you or hurts the world or hurts someone else, it's not about approving the action, it's about not defining the person for the rest of their lives by that action. And Jesus tells in the Gospel of John the story of the adulterous woman who he comes upon in the Temple Square right outside in Jerusalem, and the crowd is there, a mob really, to stone her, to suffocate her with the weight of stones. And the Pharisees, who are the religious scholars, say to Jesus, who knows he's been challenging sort of as the law, as the most important thing, he says the law also includes mercy and grace. And they say, well, you know the law. It says she should be put to death. And says that Jesus um, bends down and writes in the dirt. And it may be the only example we have that Jesus may have been literate. And we don't know exactly, but maybe he wrote the sins of the world in the dirt. And then he stands up and says, whichever one of you is, um, is without, without fault, without blame, you know, fire away. Throw the first stone. And I think one of the most important pieces of that story is that it says, and sometimes this phrase slips by us, it says, the elders, that is the wisest, the ones who have been a part of the community the longest, the elders put down their stones and drift away first. And then they're all gone. And Jesus says to the woman, have they condemned you? And she says, no. And he says, neither do I, but go and sin no more. I don't know how long that journey takes in life. For whatever the experience someone has to forgive someone else for, that was a moment, and it's collapsed into about 10 verses. But Forgiveness is a journey, just like our faith. And so um, to someone who says, I'm not yet ready to forgive, then you're not. But do know that I think forgiveness is, like that writer said, a little like pain that seems to, in the middle of the night, pack its bags. And then sometime you realize it's gone.
0: Uh, This next one isn't really a question, but a comment that you might uh, respond to. Uh, This compromise says, I'm struggling to feel the presence of God.
1: I'm struggling to feel the presence of God. Me too, sometimes. I mean, we all struggle, I think, not we all, many struggle to feel the presence of God. And the first thing I'd want to ask you then is what do you you imagine the presence of God to be like? I mean sometimes when I've had conversations with people who've come to me and said, I don't believe in God, I ask, tell me about the God you don't believe in. But in this case I would say, what do you imagine the presence of God to be like? And sometimes we think it's got to be in something magnificent and grandiose or a big booming voice or maybe even a small whispering voice. But I'm gonna be honest with you, if your experience is anything like mine, um, sometimes the silence is deafening. But I, um, I often think of um, Ruben Shears, who's a great pastor in the United Church of Christ, maybe a generation and a half older than I am. And he always tells the story about when he was waiting for God's voice to give him direction in life, and he ended up being a pastor. He talked about his church in rural South Carolina where when they would walk out of worship on a Sunday morning, the elders of the church would say, you know, Miss Susie, you seem to have the gift of explaining things. I think you're gonna be a teacher and you, you've you got the ability to build things. Maybe you're gonna be a carpenter. And, and Reuben said, um, he'd always say, well, what about me? I mean, you know, he's waiting for some sign of what he's supposed to do. And they said to him, oh, Reuben, we thought you knew. You're gonna be a pastor or, whatever you're going to end up being, but for him, a pastor. And here's what he said. It always resonated with me. He goes, for so long in life, I was waiting to hear the voice of God. And I never heard it. But what I heard all the time, and was around me all the time, is the voice of the people of God. And that's why at memorial services, when I speak to a family, I oftentimes remember, remind them that even in the midst of such sadness, that sometimes it's the presence of God comes to them in the most surprising or unusual places. Sort of like in the biblical story for the Confirmans that I always tell of the good Samaritan, who the the Jewish people hated, and the Samaritan is the one who stopped and helped and was the glimpse of God. God sometimes comes to us in surprising places. And so at a memorial service, I'll say, don't forget that you'll get a glimpse. It's not exactly... Perfect or clear, but a glimpse of the presence of God in the arms that embrace you, uh, in the lips that speak a word of kindness, or literally in the hands that maybe bring a casserole and leave it on your kitchen island. So I think the presence of God is around us all the time, and the challenge for us is to find a way to open our hearts and to open our minds and to glimpse it. Because in my experience, I've never heard the kind of booming, voice, not even a very quiet voice very often either.
0: This uh, last question is not a question from one of the confirmands, but it is uh, a question that will clearly shape uh, their lives of faith. What do you envision our churches, specifically our church, to be like in five years?
1: That is, of course, in this time, a particularly um, appropriate question. Remember, it can only be one's imagination because, you know, a lot of the future is predictable. You know, tomorrow's Monday. We know it's Monday, and after that comes Tuesday. But a lot of the future is surprising as well. You know, there's a, lot of, there's a real discussion on social media, in... in in papers, in news magazines, and and everywhere on television, whether we should or will return to the norm. A lot of people say, let's not go back to the norm. The norm wasn't so great. Other people say, we'll never go back to the norm. One of the things that I do know, and I'm reading a book right now, a great book, one of the great books of the second half of the 20th century, uh, a history book entitled A Distant Mirror. And She compares the 20th century and many of the wars in the first half of the 20th century and the pandemic of the Spanish flu, et cetera, to the 14th century. That's the mirror the 20th century was mirroring um, when the the plague existed. And throughout the 14th century, there was literally a hundred year war between what was then England and France. She said, what's astonishing in both those experiences in the 20th century and the the 14th century is the power of the norm. It's beguiling. It is um, our tendency to want to go back to what was familiar. And one of the things she lifts up is that in between 1348 and 1350, in those three years, is the greatest catastrophic experience of mortality in human history. In those three years, from what is now northern Africa through what is all of Europe and Scandinavia, roughly one half of the Western civilization died in three years from the plague. And she said people who were the chronicles or the historians of that time, even Chaucer, almost say nothing about it. There's a mention here, there's a mention there. They say nothing about it looking back on it. And then she goes back and talks about the Spanish flu, which they don't write much about. And I went into the archives of our church, and I looked at all the church meetings from 1917 to 1920. I know that's really a geeky thing to do, but I did. And in, they had monthly meetings, and the Spanish flu, which was raging in 1918 and 1919, was mentioned in our church minutes zero times. Maybe once there was a reference, and it said... Because of today's circumstances, we won't have Bible study in the church for a while. We'll do it in homes. That's it. So I hope, though, that we don't just return to what we once knew as familiar. But here's what I do think are some things that are not unlikely. You've heard me say, I think in other sermons, that demographers have said in the next 20 years, 50% of Protestant churches will close. That's been accelerated quickly. There are a lot of churches that are simply never going to reopen their doors. They won't. Um, I think this congregation, I have a hunch, in the next five years and five years from now, will continue to be as deeply connected to its mission partners as it is today, and maybe even more so. That was the spirit of this church during the Depression. I have a hunch that'll be the spirit of this congregation in the years to come. We will be just as, if not more so, deeply connected with our mission partners in the shared ministry of God's love to the world. I think we don't know what the depth of the economic pain will be not only to our nation's economy but to the global economy. I think the next couple of years will take some really intentional planning on our part to make sure we weather that storm faithfully so that we can continue to be um, full partners with with mission partners as well and in the rhythm and pattern of our church. I also think um, the presence of a camera in worship is a given going forward in in that life of our church. We are not going back from having some form of digital worship, even when we come back to in-person worship, and three years from now, we might very well have one or two in-person worship services on a Sunday morning and a digital service as well. You probably knew from the capital campaign, we were upgrading the sound system, adding cameras, We delayed that during the pandemic, but we decided we needed to get going on that because we'll be using it even more, and that begins in the next couple of weeks. So those things, I think, are are given. But um, I do know this. We will continue to praise God and worship the God who is perfect love and perfect justice and perfect mercy, and we'll do that imperfectly but we will continue to do that as faithfully as we can.
0: Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Confirmans, very much for your um, wonderful thoughts and questions. And I hope you know that we are all here for you at any time if you have ever any other questions um, that we can be helpful answering. Thank you.
1: Amen.